Well, hello and welcome to the All Creation podcast. We are talking about the sabbatical year tradition or Shemitah and how it connects to the climate crisis, sustainability, human action, God's creation, and more. My name is Yaira Robinson and I will be the host. Today, I'm excited to welcome Joelle Novi, Director of Interfaith Power and Light, DC, Maryland, and Northern Virginia. Joelle is a friend of mine and former colleague a leader in DC's Jewish community, and she's been engaged in climate action and advocacy for a really long time now. Hi, Joelle, how are you today? Good, thank you, it's so good to be here. We're so glad to have you, thank you. So before we dive into conversation about Shemitah, I'd love for you to share some about your connection to the Jewish tradition and how you've been involved as a Jewish leader. Sure. I grew up in Baltimore in a conservative synagogue where my family had been involved for several generations. And it always seemed to me, uh, even from being a teenager, that, wow, if we took these ideas seriously, um, it would be pretty radical. We'd have to change a lot about how we live and how we treat each other. <laughs> and we don't always really take these teachings to their logical conclusion. Um, and I, I really carried that question with me um, into my young adulthood, and my passion ever since really has been to challenge my own communities about what it would look like to really live out our values, um, especially in these, this time where we are facing a climate crisis created by human beings. And towards that end, I helped found a Jewish community that incorporates uh, social justice teachings and guests from local organizations in each of our prayer services. I helped write a guide for uh, Jewish communities in our region that wanted to make greener purchasing decisions around weddings and bar mitzvah celebrations. And ultimately that quest took me to my work I'm doing now at Interfaith Power and Light, where I have the opportunity every day to challenge all kinds of faith communities, not just Jewish anymore, but, but really all communities of faith and spirit throughout our region that are thinking about what is happening to our Earth's climate and how are we implicated in it? And, and what would it look like to live faithfully now that we understand that reality? So I, I have been living inside this question of what living out our values looks like in different ways. And it's a great honor to be part of those conversations now with so many other communities. That's really beautiful. Thank you. I, uh, I have always gotten the sense that for you, the work you do is connected to who you are as a person of faith and to hear kind of the evolution of that journey is really interesting. Uh, I know you were just talking some about the work that you do, but for those people who might be unfamiliar with Interfaith Power and Light nationally, and then you know whatever their, their state or local Interfaith Power and Light is, can you say a little bit more about the work that you do? Yes, I'd love to. And our listeners may know that Yaira and I uh, used to be Interfaith Power and Light colleagues once upon a time. So Interfaith Power and Light um, works in about 40 states around the country galvanizing people of faith in particular in responding to climate change and the climate crisis as a moral and religious issue. And my particular role is to direct the Interfaith Power and Light affiliate that serves uh, Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Northern Virginia. And so we are working with, at this point, hundreds of congregations of all faith traditions across our region where folks are reflecting on learning together about what is happening to our world and are really heart sick about that and trying to live faithfully in this moment and in this time, figuring out 
how can they open conversations about climate change? It's very hard to talk about climate change, but we have to talk about it if we're going to solve it. So talking about climate change with each other and with their families and with their friends, raising up, uh, thinking, you know, rooting in their own traditions and teachings about what wisdom we might bring into this moment, um, walking the talk by greening their facilities, their homes, shifting to cleaner power, and really being a beacon in their communities for the future that we, we need to build together. And ultimately, we are um, trying to move faith communities to be a voice for stronger climate policy, to join the larger movements we're going to need to make the change that is required in this moment. And as you suspected, I am very um, grounded in, in this work every day in my own Judaism. And I thought a lot about, well, in what way is the work I'm doing guided by the Jewish teachings I was raised with? And I think the one that I keep coming back to is Rabbi Fred Sherlander Dobb, a wonderful rabbi with a, who's been a leader on environmental Torah for a long time, has put together a, a source sheet of some of the Jewish texts that might inform a Jewish response to climate change. And one of the series of texts on there concerns the rabbinic discourse about when we can violate Shabbat to save a human life. So the, to the rabbis of the Jewish tradition, the Sabbath and its rules were very important. And so it meant, meant something and said something about their priorities that if a human life is at stake, they said you can break the Sabbath rules to save someone's life. But then because the Jewish tradition is very um, dialectic and conversational across the generations about, you know, what, what, how does that play out in specific situations? There's kind of a dialogue across, uh, across the generations about, well, what if, you know, if a doctor says it's necessary to break Shabbat to save the person's life, you break Shabbat. And then somebody asks, well, what if there isn't scientific consensus? What if one doctor says it's necessary to break Shabbat and another doctor says it's not necessary? And the answer comes back, you still err on the side of caution. You break Shabbat to save the person's life, even if in, the, in the case where the doctors disagree. And then if somebody asks, well, what if there isn't any medical professional around and you have to make the judgment call on your own without any expert advice? What if you just think it's possible that there might be danger to human life in this situation? And the answer comes back, even doubtful danger to human life makes Shabbat laws lenient. You go ahead and break Shabbat. And then the final text in Rabbi Dobbs, Sherlander Dobbs' text sheet is a comment by Yosef Caro in the Middle Ages who comes along to comment, and he says, the person who rushes to do this, who rushes to break Shabbat in a doubtful case, in a case of doubtful danger to human life where it's ambiguous, this person is praiseworthy, but the person in that situation who stops to ask more questions, to futz around and to, de to look for reasons to delay, that's a murderer. So what I see in this and that I resonate with so deeply is a fierce spirit of intervention in the Jewish tradition, a real vibe, <laughs> an ethic that when life may be at stake, we have to get involved. And it's not acceptable to look for reasons to, complex, to complexify or reasons to delay or to say that because we don't know absolutely everything about the situation that we face, we cannot take action yet. Like, I come from people who get involved and take action when life is at stake. And, you know, certainly with the climate crisis, we are in such a moment right now. And I feel like if I get anything from my tradition 
in facing this moment. It's that I need to take action rather than look for reasons to postpone or delay. That's really powerful. I don't think I'd heard that, that teaching before. So thank you for sharing that. Yes, and I, I find that very compelling. So we'll shift now to our official topic of conversation, the sabbatical year or Shemitah. So in Hebrew, Shemitah means release. According to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the land is supposed to be worked for six years and then rest on the seventh, the Shemitah year, which we happen to be in right now. As we speak, we're in the Jewish year of 5782, a Shemitah year. So this practice of release, of letting go, of letting be, really starts with the land. The Bible refers to it as a Sabbath ceasing for the land. But it is also a Sabbath for people. There's to be no tilling, no sowing, no harvesting for sale. This vision for the Sabbath year includes all people and even all animals, including wild animals. The food that grows in this year is supposed to be free for anyone, human and animal alike, to eat. So I am curious about this connection between land and animals and people, all connected to God in some way. What are your thoughts on that? What's your take here? What I appreciate so much about what I think a lot of our sacred traditions are bringing to this moment is putting an asterisk next to our feeling that we own the earth and own land. Um, you know, and there are many ways that, you know, I think Shemitah and the, and the teachings that whether or not it feels like you own land on a regular cycle, you have to release it back to some collective is one way the Jewish tradition, at least in principle, I don't know how often this was really practiced, but at least in principle was trying to set out a vision of a way of living in which everyone would sort of have a permanent asterisk <laughs> after the idea of owning the earth. And I see so many ways that tradition that the communities we work with are trying to bring that, you know, to, to add that asterisk in a world where we are encountering so many negative consequences of um, sort of not understanding our, our position in the world as interdependent. So when faith communities have begun adding land acknowledgments, when they start their worship services, so they say, we recognize the indigenous people who were the original caretakers of this land. And that in some cases saying, and it was not ever ceded or, you know, it was stolen basically, you know, that is, that is a big asterisk on, on the idea that they have no responsibilities to the larger, to larger whole around how they treat the, the land and the property that they occupy. And when um, I'll talk more about this later, I think, but when we, when Jewish communities say brachot before we eat every food, I mean, every single one of those brachot, you know, reminds us of the source and says, you know, I'm about to hold this apple in my hand and eat it because I think of it as mine and for my consumption. But in fact, it has, it has a divine source and I'm going to praise that divine source before I put it in my mouth. So I'm not a very agricultural grounded person personally, but I do um, really appreciate the, the way that Shemitah forces everyone to think differently about land ownership and to put huge brackets and a big asterisk next to the idea that we have pieces of the earth that we own over and on which we can do anything we want. 
without thinking about our interdependence or the consequences to other creatures and species. And then I was just thinking, you know, you're, I, I appreciated um, being invited to this conversation because it got me thinking about, well, what, you know, as a, I'm not a farmer, and so I don't know a whole lot about agriculture, but what I, I do know something about letting go, <laughs> and that letting go is really hard, and that so much of what we need to do in our world right now is letting go, right, is releasing, releasing, you know, why do people have so much trouble really thinking about what climate science means? I think one reason is because it's hard to let go of our expectations of the world that we grew up with. And our expectation was that, you know, the seasons and the cycles and the climate of the places that we love would always stay the same. And releasing that expectation is necessary to confront the climate crisis. And we have so much difficulty doing that. And, you know, releasing the expectation that our children will grow up in a world with the same climate that, that the world we grew up in and that their children will have that opportunity as well. Again, if, if we're going to get serious about this, we have to release that, that expectation so that we can grapple with our reality. You know, I, I work with congregations that are grappling with doing coffee hour in a different way or shifting the way they get their energy. Or, you know, in my communities now, there's a lot of people talking about really getting off gas, including in their ovens, which is a very, you know, personal and intimate thing, a place where you make your own food. And are you going to do that? Think about doing that differently. And what would you have to release? What would we have to let go of about what's comfortable, what's familiar? Same with like changing the way we eat. All of these things require us to release things that we may have thought we were going to be able to hold on to forever in order to make something new possible. And so I do, again, I, as a, as a less agriculturally oriented person, I, I appreciate Shemita as a teaching about the spiritual necessity of releasing and letting go. I really love that. Yeah, as you were talking, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking, so, you know, Shemitah comes around like every seven years. So you're absolutely right. Like it's a, it's a reminder. You can't go very long with your practices the way they are without then, you know, the seventh year comes along, which just in some ways like completely upends, you know, your quote unquote regular way of life, your regular practice, and is just a powerful teaching and reminder about kind of right relationship with with the earth, with the land, and then also, you know, the other creatures that we share this planet with. And then as you're talking about, you know, this this letting go, I just kept thinking about the physical act of that, like when we're holding on to something in our hands to try to really there's a sense of that safety sometimes, but also control. And then, you know, when you let go, and that can be hard, as you've, as you've noted, that can be scary, because maybe a lack of control. But in that release, you're also letting, you know, whatever you've been holding on to, you're letting it be itself, and like have its own agency. And that's when I read the passages about Shemitah in the text, it really is more about the agency of the land than it is about humans or, or it's not human centric at all. It's very land centric. Anyway, so sorry, I just was doing a riff about that. But one thing that I heard you start to say too is you were talking about these ideas of ownership. So I've heard you speak before about this, this kind of inherent tension in Jewish tradition between 
dueling concepts of who, for lack of a better term, owns the earth, owns the land. I'd love to hear you speak some more about that here. So as with so many things in Judaism, there's not an easy answer to the question of what does Judaism say about humanity's role in the earth? Does Judaism regard human beings as just another one of the animals or does, human, does um, Judaism regard human beings as um, somehow appointed with a special role from God? Does Judaism regard the earth as belonging in some sense to human beings? These are all actually really contested and, and, and the dialogue and tension between the, the different uh, poles is, is present in the Jewish tradition. And I think we can carry on with that grappling ourselves in this moment when it's such a critical question. So, so one of the texts I love about this and actually is my, my now husband who first brought these texts to my attention when we were college students is that, um, the Rabbi Levi in the Talmud finds two psalms, two quotes from psalms that seem to contradict each other. So there's a, one psalm, 24, that says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, which is a frequently quoted text people are probably familiar with. And then there's another psalm that says, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth God has given to humanity. So Rabbi Levi, picking up on this um, apparent contradiction, tries to resolve the, how could it be that the, that the Psalms, the, uh, the, the Tehillim, Tehillim, you know, uh, uh, contradict each other. That one says that everything, including the earth, belongs to God. And this other text says that the heavens belong to God, but the earth belongs to people. And Rabbi Levi resolves it by saying, there is no contradiction. In the one case, it is before a blessing or a bracha has been said. And in the other case, it is after a bracha has been said. So what does that mean? Well, in in Jewish tradition, the brachot we say before eating, for example, point us to the source of that food. So we say, blessed is the one who brought forth bread from the earth. Uh, blessed is the one who created the fruit of the vine. Blessed is the one who made the fruit of the tree. Um, so this teaching suggests that the earth is God's, all of the earth is God's, but a human being who rightly acknowledges and understands the divine source has um, then the earth is given to humanity, only then. So this points to a kind of special role for people that can be kind of provisional permission to preside over the earth, only if we do so perpetually mindful of the divine ownership, divine creator, divine energy present in all creation. Thank you, and that's so beautiful. And now that I've really fully heard this explanation, I will be keeping that in mind the next time I take a drink or a bite mm -hmm. to eat, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the blessings that I say, uh, I think that that intention of and not just bringing our thankfulness to God, but really, you know, the thankfulness for the gifts of creation and that special relationship is really beautiful. So one thing that I wanted to ask you particularly about is this rhythm of Jewish time. So there's Shabbat, the Sabbath day. We are to work for six days and then rest on the seventh. 
And then that expands out into the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year, that the land is to be worked for six years and then released for rest on the seventh. I'm wondering what we can learn from this rhythm of sacred time for people and for the earth. And specifically for you, you've been organizing and advocating for climate action for a long time now. I know from experience that that can be a beautiful and frustrating, inspiring and exhausting road, just kind of all interwoven at the same time. So do these rhythms of sacred time offer any wisdom, guidance or sustenance for social justice and climate activists? And mm. if so, what, what does that look like? What can that look like? Yeah, the older I get, the more I feel like we have to live with just irresolvable paradoxes and that if we can navigate through them with some kind of balance and feeling tension on both sides, that's, that's the wise path. That's the way forward. So I was, I was remembering um, a text from Rabbi Simcha Bunim for a Hasidic teaching that every person should keep a, a little note in each pocket, like a little piece of paper, one in each pocket. And one of the pieces of paper says, the world was created for me. And the other pa paper on the other side in the other pocket says, I am but dust and ashes. And that both of them are true. <laughs> and that sometimes in our lives, we need to take out one paper and sometimes we need to take out the other one. And that we just have to exist in the world holding these intention, both the idea that we are totally exalted and that we are totally humble. And so I think about that kind of tension, like existing, if you're trying to be a human being who, who takes the climate crisis seriously, like on the one hand, it's an emergency and we need to like ring all the fire bells and get everyone to act with a complete urgency about a, a, a really time sensitive, global catastrophic issue that is coming our way. And I try to access that emergency energy when I'm not feeling it enough. And yet somehow we also have to like do the laundry and raise children and make food and sustain ourselves and care for each other and notice and appreciate and live. And sometimes that need for rest is the, is the other note that I need in my pocket, you know, and that we need, and even building the movements we need to solve the climate crisis will require that kind of nourishing long view, slow grassroots trust-based organizing, right? So I think we have to have like weekday consciousness in one pocket and Shabbat or Shemitah consciousness in the other pocket. And that I like to think that the rhythms of the Jewish calendar, the rhythms of, of the week and the rhythms of the, the seven year cycle both discipline us if we let them to make sure that we keep these two things in tension and balance and that we make time. We have to make time to stop creating. We have to make time to release and restore. We have to make time where we are not pushing as hard as we can to make things different. And so to me, that's, that, that's the, the insight at the heart of Jewish time. I love that. Thank you. I mean, the threat of burnout is real. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yes, that, that I think is an important reminder for many of us that we can go, 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 but that there has to be a, a time to stop and pause and breathe and 
reflect and be grateful. So thank you. So I wonder if you have any closing thoughts for our listeners, anything else that you want to say, things that you hope, you know, people who are listening will do or reflect on from this conversation and maybe take into their lives. Yeah. I mean, I invite everyone who's listening today to, um, to think for yourself about if you, if you try to avoid it, (laughs) especially try to think for yourself, why the climate crisis matters to you and to find at least one way to open a conversation about it with somebody who matters to you and to think about finding one way to connect with others so that you are not alone with that. And, you know, when I think about what do I need to release to be present in this moment, sort of what is my Shemitah, what's my Shemitah mandate myself? I I have found that I keep catching myself avoiding the losses, like avoiding the grief that would come if I take seriously what is happening to our climate. And that I keep, like I am a climate activist and I notice myself avoiding a podcast because I don't want to think about climate change (laughs) or like, you know, choosing, you know, and, and, and to me, trying to stay away from that pain is the thing I'm like, you know, you described yeah, you're the, um, the image of someone kind of grasping something tightly in their hands and not, not letting go. And, and the ways that can be like, so damaging to the person gripping, <laughs> gripping yeah. on, not just mm-hmm. to whatever's being grasped. And, um, the, the, the thing I do that about is, is trying to avoid the, the pain of confronting our reality directly. And that when, with, when I can release that and say, I am grieving for so much that I love. I'm grieving for the people I love who will experience a warmer and more catastrophic, you know, and more dangerous world. I'm grieving for the species that will not make it. I am, you know, I'm feeling grief that is grounded in tremendous love. And then suddenly when my, with my heart open and my hands open, that that's an tremendously powerful thing, right? It's like, I'm going to be a warrior (laughs) in the world for the things that I love. I'm gonna have fierce like mother bear protective energy for the for all that I love. And I'm in the fight of my life for all that I love. And suddenly instead of being um, cowering and being cons- you know, constricted by the feelings, I'm like released and ennobled and energized by those, by the by them. So I think that's that would be my suggestion as a a Shemitah mandate for, for those who are sort of heart sick about the climate crisis. Thank you. That's really powerful. And I, I just want to say, I heard you say heart sick earlier in this conversation. And I was like, oh, that's a great term, heart sick. <laughs> like, I just feel like that really gets at that exact pain and angst and ache um, related to climate grief. Um, So thank you for sharing that. And I love this idea of really feeling that grief and like releasing and, you know, letting ourselves feel that heart sickness, Mm -hmm. but then letting it transform us um, into 
you know, a more positive, active kind of energy. And one of the things, I mean, and so I don't do this anymore for a living, but, um, but I also, as you mentioned, worked for a while in the, in the interfaith power and light world and was connected then to many people in different congregations and different walks of life and different faith traditions who were heart sick about climate um, and sustainability. And I just remember like the most common question that I got, and I'm sure you've heard this too, is just, you know, the sense of it being so overwhelming and what can, what can I possibly do? And just, it was kind of like standing in the grocery store aisle, like in the cereal aisle of the grocery store. And there's like so many choices that you don't even know. You feel overwhelmed and like don't uh -huh. know what to do, what to pick. And the diversity of creation, the diversity of nature, I think can really be an instructive teacher here. I mean, there, there's like a billion kinds of flowers and insects and trees. And there's a billion different ways that people can engage in these issues and start to take action. And in the same way that all the flowers are beautiful, like all the actions that people start to take, no matter how small, like it's not insignificant, it matters. So thank you for helping me yeah. to reflect on that and remember. I love that. And, and that also that there's a role for everyone that's completely authentic to who they are. Um, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe has a new book out called Saving Us. And I had the privilege of getting to chat with her about it on a Zoom call with several hundred people last week. And, um, and she talked about that everyone already is who they need to be to respond to the climate crisis because we all already love something or someone that will be harmed by the climate mm -hmm. crisis. Mm -hmm. And that we can never invite people to be someone else, but we can always invite them to be more fully who they are. And so that, that vision of like, whoever you are, we need you, whoever you are, you have what, what you need already to be part of this movement, I think is a very, yeah, very powerful teaching for all of us. Yes, I love that. Well, thank you for sharing. That is a great place for us to end. Thank you, Joelle, for being who you are and for doing the work in the world and in your community that you do. Thank you for sharing some of that with us today. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. And um, uh, likewise, I, I appreciate who you are and, um, and the voices you're lifting up through this project.